0: Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, uh, the way in which you nourish and build up, uh, you bring correction, you uh, edify, you bring joy to your people. Father, your word is truth and you sanctify your people through your truth. And I pray that this morning uh, you would anoint my feeble lips and that you would enable this, your people, to grow as the word is quickened and mixed with faith in our hearts. We bless you, and uh, we pray that you would receive our continued worship as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. It's very easy to get discouraged when things don't go like you had expected them to, and it can range from anything, from your spouse not responding to your sacrificial work the way that you had hoped, uh, to finances running out before your bills run out, uh, to your favorite candidate not winning in office. There's all kinds of things that can discourage us. And when you get hit over and over again, that discouragement can run very, very deep, just like it did in the Apostle Paul. In uh, verse 9, when God calls uh, Paul and He tells him uh, not to be afraid, it implies that his heart was gripped with fear. And when he tells him there not to be quiet, not to to speak, and not be silent, it implies he was thinking, debating whether he should continue preaching there or not. And when he calls him not to leave Corinth, it implies that he was ready to pack up his bags and leave. And that is exactly the state of mind that Paul says that he was in when he wrote to these Corinthians and he reminds them of these days. 1 Corinthians 2, 3 Paul says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And he goes on in First and Second Corinthians, there's various references to the great discouragement that he had during the time that this chapter is describing. And this has been the experience of many saints uh, down through history. If you are prone to discouragement, uh, you're not alone. Uh, you can think of the greatest leader in the Old Testament, Moses, who was very, very discouraged and he complained to God in these words, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on you? You sometimes feel like God really did not care what's going on in your life. Uh, He's kind of against you. He's really not for you. Moses felt that way at this point, even though he had God's favor, he had more miracles, he had more of God's presence in his life than many people do, but even he could be prone to discouragement. He goes on, "'Did I conceive all these people? "'Did I beget them, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian "'carries a nursing child "'to the land which you swore to their fathers?' Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. Wow, he was pretty discouraged, I would say. And then his successor, Joshua, who was an incredibly mighty man, he was so discouraged at one point he said, He said, Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. He's basically saying, Lord, I regret that I followed you across this river. I wish we had stayed on the other side. It was a lot better over there. And then you can think of um, Elijah. He was a man who called down fire from heaven to consume these bands of 50 that came against him. Uh, he was, uh, had all kinds of miracles that God had wrought through him, the amazing confrontation on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. And yet he became so discouraged, he wished he could die. You can think of Job in Job 3, verse 3. Here's a man that Jesus, I mean, that God the Father says, uh, was blameless and upright, and yet Job wished he had never been born. That's how discouraged he had gotten in Job 3, verse 3. And there are other lessons that I could have taught you this morning out of this um, a section of scripture, but I really believe God wants me to talk to you this morning about discouragement. I know several of you guys are very discouraged about what's been happening uh, in your lives, and it's my prayer that this chapter here would motivate you to put your trust once again in the Lord and to keep on keeping on. Let's look, first of all, what contributed to Paul's discouragement? Well, he's been reflecting very much about what's been happening over the past year. This is his second missionary journey What's been happening in this past year, there was a lot to be discouraged about. I'm sure he's still being pained by the betrayal of John Mark and Barnabas, pulling the uh, team away, his team imploding. Or actually, right now, uh, he's all alone, and as he thinks about all of that he's invested in, and let me just go through some of the cities that he has visited and regions he has visited on this second trip, Syria, Cilicia. Derby, Lystra, Phrygia, Galatia, Mysia, Troas, Samothracia, Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. That represents a lot of work and a lot of travel. And he probably feels like there has not been nearly the success that he had hoped that he would receive. How many times had he been run out of town before he's hardly been able to begin preaching? Now, from hindsight, we know God was already going to be raising up some thriving churches. He was going to be able to come back and visit them later. But at this time in life, there are many commentators who think that Paul felt like he was a failure. Uh, he was very discouraged. The last verse of chapter 17 Indicates there were a few people who believed in Athens, but it wasn't any resounding success to his uh, mission, and a driven man like Paul could become very easily discouraged. He was not alone. Uh, There are surveys that have been done that show that one in five pastors feel like quitting the ministry every Monday morning. Every Monday morning. And I know some of these pastors, and you think, why would they feel so discouraged? Great ministry, God's working through them, but they just feel like utter failures. Uh, Recently, there was a poll done that said 95% of pastors are majorly discouraged. Not going to quit on Monday, but they feel majorly discouraged. But you know what? If we were to do the exact same survey of mothers, I bet we would come up with exactly the same statistics. I think we would. You know, how discouraging it can it be, you know, when you're cleaning up a mess every day and the next day it just seems like it's the same. <laughs> you know, how many times do you wash the dishes, you've got another pile before you, how many times do you discipline that kid, you know, and here he's got to be disciplined again. And how many times do you cook a wonderful meal for your family and they scarf it down without so much of, as a thank you, you know, what an ungrateful family. But many men feel the same way. They can get discouraged. They feel like they're going two steps forward, three steps back, and they're wondering, am I accomplishing anything in this life? How many grandparents feel discouraged because their grandkids are not turning out the way that they had hoped that they would turn out? I'm telling you, discouragement is common to man. And this passage addresses how we can uh, respond to this uh, discouragement. Verse 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Uh, Even though Athens was more of a stronghold of Satan in some ways, uh, uh, yeah, Athens was more of a stronghold in some ways than Corinth was, especially in the intellectual arena and the amount of idolatry that was there, Corinth had its own strongholds of Satan. The two primary gods were Neptune, because this was a seaport, and the goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love, Uh, the Romans called her Venus. And anybody who writes about Corinth says Corinth was the most immoral city in the empire, at least that we have any records of uh, from the ancient writings. Uh, There was just immorality everywhere. No sexual perversion was hidden from sight. And so if you're grossed out by the gay pride parades in San Francisco, just realize they didn't have to protest in Corinth. You know, this was just something that was common. In fact, in Corinth, the whole city was so given over to immorality that throughout the uh, Roman Empire, the the word to Corinthianize, where they take the word Corinth and they turn it into a verb, the word to Corinthianize meant to engage in sexual perversion. That's how far gone uh, Corinth had become. Every imaginable kind of sex industry was available. And just to give you a little idea, the main temple had 1,000 uh, temple prostitutes. Now, some people have suggested that when Paul wrote Romans one twenty-six through 28, he was thinking of Corinth, what he had seen in this city. And whether that's the case or not, it was a city completely given over to depravity. That could be very discouraging. You're walking into the city and wondering, should I even be here? This is gross. This is terrible. But from hindsight, I find this very encouraging because even though Corinth was so depraved, it was not too depraved for God's grace to break through and to begin to take over that city. And so when we look at things in our nation and see how far gone things have become, we can say God's grace is able. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul describes uh, what depraved and perverted people, some of those people in Corinth were. You read that chapter, you say, whoa, that the people in there have really been rescued from something, but that's the point. He goes on to describe what God's grace did in their lives, and he says, such were some of you, but now you're washed, you're changed, you know. He, he had completely enabled them to conquer uh, by his grace. The third thing that could have been overwhelming for Paul was the immense size of this city. Athens was just a little dumpy town, 10,000 people, maximum 10,000, whereas Corinth was a minimum of 250,000. Back in those days, that was a huge city. Uh, He didn't have his team with him. And as he enters this city as a lone stranger, lost in a sea of humanity, the enormity of the task could have been overwhelming. And I think any one of us can get discouraged when you look at the task that you're responsible to do and you wonder, how in the world can I achieve that? It just seems overwhelming. Maybe some of you... Uh, youngsters, you know, you you have your head in your hands and you're wondering, how can I do all of this mountain of math equations that mom has put in front of me? I can't do it. I can't do it. Well, the enormity of the task can sometimes discourage us if our thinking is not straight. We've got to adjust our thinking continually because if we don't, we'll get sucked down into discouragement. Then there was the loneliness of the work. Verse 2 shows that Aquila and Priscilla are the first Christians that he meets in that city. All alone, loneliness can take over when you're thrust into overwhelming situations with no one to help. So perhaps for you, your discouragement just comes from loneliness. Uh, some people are lonely in a crowd. Uh, some people are lonely by choice. Uh, some people are lonely because they don't have a, a spouse. Uh, there can be any number of reasons why we are lonely, but loneliness can often lead uh, to a great deal of... Me- uh, of um, of um, discouragement. It can take its toll upon us emotionally. Paul's been alone in Athens. He's been alone on his trip here. He's been alone in the first stages of his ministry in Corinth. Stress can also take its toll. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 7, Paul describes this time in his life that we've just read about here, and he says, "...in all our affliction and distress." Now, we don't know what the afflictions and distresses were that he was experiencing right before Timothy and Silas came, uh, but their message and their gift of finances brought incredible encouragement to him in all, he says, our, which would be Aquila and Priscilla and Paul, are affliction and distresses. So that too can take a toll on us emotionally. Then lack of finances did not help. Uh, look at verses 3 through 4. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Until Silas and Timothy come along in verse 5, Paul did not have the money to be able to engage in pastoral ministry full time. 1 Thessalonians says he was in great need financially. Uh, Verse 4 implies here that his primary ministry, uh, pastoral ministry, because all of life is ministry, right? But his primary pastoral ministry only took place on the Sabbath day. Now, some people have said... You know, Paul was a tent maker, and we're not going to send any money for these people. You need to go tent make when you're going on missions. This is the way Paul did it. This is the way you should do it. But Paul didn't want to do it that way. He speaks uh, with great disparagement of that tent making ministry in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Read that chapter sometime and see what his attitude toward that was. When you're working hard to make ends meet, to put food on the table, you don't have a lot of time left over to be engaged in pastoral ministry. Now let's uh, apply this uh, to you. Maybe some of you men, you wish you had more time to pastor your families. You feel the pressure. You say, I, I really want to be involved in my family, but I've got to work so many hours to put food on the table I just don't have the time to be able to invest in my family the way I wish that I could. It can be very discouraging to be in that situation. So don't idealize this tent-making ministry. What you need to be doing is saying, Lord, prosper my finances so that I can have more time in my family, just like you prospered Paul's finances so that he could have more time in the calling that you gave to him. So this really added to his discouragement. It slowed him down in his progress. And then finally... Opposition from the Jews once again was just too much to take. Beginning at verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Paul could tell the telltale signs of persecution about to come. He didn't know if he could take another beating or another stay in jail or whatever it was was going to happen to him. And he was definitely debating, am I going to give up? But just set aside the persecution uh, uh, part of the equation. It is majorly discouraging when people willfully, obstinately resist the word of God in their rebellion. There does come a time when those people are never going to be able to repent, where they've stepped over the line and God will no longer uh, be with them. He just abandons them. We call this the unpardonable sin, and nobody knows when they have stepped over that line. Uh, line, but there does come a time when God says, I'm no, no longer going to give light. These people are going to keep quenching uh, that light and snuffing it out. <clears throat> and uh, this is a serious point even within the church because there are terrors within the church. And sometimes churches as a whole have their candlestick plucked up. But Revelation 2 verse 5 tells the church of Ephesus... Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Paul is grieved. He's grieved at the persistence of their rebellion, and this is like the final straw that broke the camel's back. Now, as you look through your outline and you see any of those things that relate to you, you say, yes, this is one of the reasons for my discouragement. Maybe you've got something else, but I really believe some of the... Things that encouraged Paul can be an encouragement in your life as well. First of all, he found friends. Verse 2 says, And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. Now, I don't doubt that this couple probably was a bit discouraged as well because they'd been kicked out of Rome, out of their home to go who knows where. But God in His providence brought Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla together. And it was not a situation where misery loves company. This was a situation where they really were godly encouragers, building each other up, encouraging them to keep on keeping on. Romans 16, 3 through 4 says that this couple was willing to risk their lives for a Paul. That's how much they were for Paul. So, if you have a tendency to get discouraged, first thing I would say to you is find some godly friends who can encourage you. Hang out with encouragers. Uh, if you're sticking to yourself, you're missing out on one of the means that God uses to keep us from getting bitter, to keep us from being overwhelmed with life, and uh, giving up. It's the mutual edification of the saints. Next, we find Silas and Timothy coming to join him in verse uh, 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to notice that the Spirit of God gave this renewed energy within Paul in the context of friends ministering to him, and God frequently does this, as uh, you're you're, you know talking with godly people, and they keep you from getting into self pity, that uh, you find the Spirit stirring up a renewed determination to follow after Him. It's almost like this fellowship is a fuel that energizes you. It's really a cool thing to see. And so, uh, godly friends is an important thing, but I should point out that not all friends uh, can do this in your life. Some friends will actually end up dragging you down and making you feel even more miserable. There are basically three types of people who are out there, and every church has all three. There are, the first of all, the joy suckers, the, the energy suckers. These are people who have no joy in their life, but boy, they're bound and determined to take the joy out of your life too. They got no energy to do anything, but they just latch onto you and they suck all of the energy out of your life. And then there are the people who are kind of neutral. They neither add to your life nor take away from it. You can enjoy being around them, but it doesn't really add a whole lot. And then there are the people who, when you have talked with them, even five, ten minutes, you come away feeling great. You feel like there's a new wind in your sails. Those are the kind of people, you know, that can really renew uh, the, the sense of life uh, within you. And almost all of us have some joy suckers that God has put into our lives. It's almost like God feels like we need it, you know. He's going to put that into your life because you need to overcome, uh, through supernatural power, your own uh, tendency toward discouragement, But you also need to minister to these people without being overcome. So almost all of us have some of those. The majority of people that we meet tend to be neutral. They don't affect us greatly up or greatly down. But every one of us needs at least one or two joy-givers, energy-givers, encouragers that can come uh, into our lives. Uh, Avoid spending too much time with people who like to talk about everything that's wrong. And you know exactly what I'm speaking about. Just complain, complain. Everything's wrong. And then when you talk about, yeah, I had this happen. Oh, yeah. And then they're overly sympathetic with you. And before you know it, you're in a pity party more so than you even were when you talked to this person. You're both drugged down. So you, you can't do that. Avoid spending too much self, uh, time feeling sorry for yourself and start hanging out with godly encouragers. The next friend that comes is justice. That's in verse 7. "...he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue." Now, here is a man with vision, and it helps to reignite the vision of Paul. Here is a man who loved to worship so much that Luke takes note of it. There is nothing like the enthusiasm of new, young believers to reignite energy within us old warriors." I mean, I get jazzed when I see some of you young people out there engaging in ministry, whether it's like some of you guys are engaged in some of these political races or uh, trying to promote the homeschool movement or involved in Bible studies or debating theology with, with each other. I mean, I love to see that those kinds of things energize me. They encourage me. And what I want to tell you young people is don't let us old geezers rob you of that enthusiasm and that joy because it's very easy for joy suckers to take it out of you. Don't allow that to happen. And so it's a gift to the body, and I value it very, very much. So hang out with people who are growing, who are walking with God, who love to worship, who have vision for the future, who have a faith of what God can do, but make sure you are not one of the joy suckers that robs those people of their joy. Okay, we've all got to be involved. Let me read you a little section from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. It's Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Notice it's lift up, not lie down with them and commiserate with all the misery they're in. will lift up his uh, companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? The one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Brothers and sisters, you need godly encouragers to help you to keep on keeping on. Don't isolate yourself, and you need to be godly encouragers uh, to those who are out there. And so the first remedy for his discouragement was the fellowship of the saints, not the misery of the saints, not the mutual complaining of the saints, but the mutual edification of the saints, mutual ministry of the saints. I don't think mutual complaining is one of the uh, one-anothering passages you know, that are listed in the Bible. <laughs> Second remedy, dealt with the physical. And we'll see in a moment that Silas and Timothy brought a huge financial gift with them from the Macedonian churches. And uh, that enables Paul to stop tent making, to engage in his pastoral ministry throughout the week, not just on Sunday, uh, on, on the Sabbath when he was with the, the Jews, it enabled Paul to get a little bit of rest and dividing up the work enabled Paul to not be so stressed out. Uh, this point, I think, is only hinted at here, but it 's filled out a lot more in first and second Corinthians, first and second Thessalonians. Paul was getting absolutely worn out by this time, first Corinthians two verse three, for example says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. It it sounds like he had a hard time even standing up. He needed to take care of his body, and tent making was the last thing that he needed to do. Many people get discouraged because they are pushing their bodies way, way too much, including my son Jonathan. Uh, Push, push, push. And they'll eventually have a collapse, and you can see that. One of the things that I... Uh, mention to people when they come to me and they say, I just feel even suicidal, I feel so depressed, so discouraged. I ask them, uh, how much sleep have you had in the last uh, week or two? And usually it's not very much. And one of the things you find is when people get a good night's rest, the next day everything looks so much more rosy. It's an amazing thing. Another thing I ask them is, you know, how much have you been eating? Have you been eating regularly? Have you been getting a balanced diet? You know, our bodies and our spirits are so connected that sometimes the body will ill affect uh, the way our spirit feels. And so healthy eating, a bit of exercise, a balanced schedule can be a big help, but take care of your bodies. The third encouragement to Paul was the huge gift of finances that Silas and Timothy brought with them from Macedonia. Now, we can come to this conclusion when we compare this passage with two passages in his epistles. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9 says... And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. I should mention that Jonathan actually has been getting enough sleep. I asked him the other day. I was worried about him, but uh, he said, No, Dad, I've been getting eight to nine hours of sleep. I said, Whoa, okay, better than me. But uh, (laughs) anyway, this verse we just read there indicates that his financial deficit was covered when Silas and Timothy came. Uh, Macedonian church gave generously. Uh, Philippi- in Philippians, he tells us, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Indeed, I have all and abound. Philippians 4:14 4, through 18. So Paul told. Uh, that church there, that they had been an incredible encouragement to him during that time of need. Financial assistance to a brother in need can really lift up their their spirits. Now, in this church, we really emphasize, you know, um, self-initiative and self-support and and really trying to take care of your own finances, but we should not do that to the exclusion of helping out brothers and sisters uh, in need. And so when you see a brother and sister in need, drop 50 bucks or 500 bucks uh, into their lap. Uh, This is one of the things God has called us uh, together to do. You know, in Galatians, uh, there's two verses back to back. One says, let each man bear his own burdens. And then I think the very next verse says, we need to bear one another's burdens. That's not in contradiction. It says our attitude for our own should be we're going to take responsibility, but we need to be willing to receive and we need to be willing to help one another out as well. This can be an incredible encouragement to each other. The other thing that Silas and Timothy brought out of Macedonia was good news about the Thessalonian church. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul was terribly terribly concerned about the faith of those new believers. Remember, he had gotten kicked out rather early. He wasn't able to solidify them uh, in the faith. Now, let me go ahead and read the first ten verses of that chapter so you can get a little bit of a feel for the stress Paul was feeling over their condition and what a relief it was to hear from Timothy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, We thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, for in fact, we told you before uh, when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live. If you stand fast in the Lord, but what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith, in your faith. So you can see it was a tremendous relief for Paul when Timothy And Silas brought this uh, good news of their growth. And there can be nothing more encouraging to elders and deacons than to see that people are growing in the Lord, that they're really uh, being strengthened, taking God's Word to heart. There can be nothing more encouraging and energizing to parents than for them to see their children submitting, growing in the Lord, loving the Lord, being zealous for Him. So if you want to encourage your parents, you know, be holy, follow the Lord, be zealous for the Lord. Those are things that are so energizing uh, to leaders who are concerned for you. The fifth thing that God used to revive Paul's lagging spirits were some positive results within Corinth itself. The home of justice was just the place where ministry needed to happen. In fact, I think this is so ironic because the synagogue kicks them out. He didn't, they don't want to have anything to do with Paul And Justice comes along and says, hey, I've got a house right next to the synagogue. We can continue doing exactly what we've been doing. Very, very encouraging. So he starts engaging in ministry there. And then in verse 8, it says, then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. And so the synagogue, even though it didn't want to have anything to do with, uh, with Paul, God gave the... Pastor of that synagogue uh, to Paul, and as a result, many many people became uh, believers. And so, what God's doing here is He's throwing in some encouragement, some success, you, sh- you could say, in order to to encourage Paul's spirits. This Is one of the things that I do when I'm counseling people who have major problems, like if they're uh, some of the ones who have been addicted to crack, uh, cocaine, or something uh, something really serious. You know it's going to take a while uh, for them to be able to overcome that. And so what you do is you initially start working on some problems that are related but are much easier for them to lick so that they get immediate success which engenders hope and engenders encouragement and enables them to keep on keeping on. I encourage you to use that strategy with your children. God does this with us. He gives us these little successes to cause us to grow. The last thing that encouraged Paul is probably the most important thing we could talk about and that is the promises of God given in verses 9 through 10. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. The reality of God's presence in Paul's life was a constant source of encouragement. In fact, in your outlines, I probably should have made that another whole separate point. We're not going to deal with it this morning. But when you see God working in your life, you see that He really is present. That's a very encouraging thing. But here's the problem, and one of the reasons maybe why I didn't focus on that. When you're discouraged, you tend to be blind to the fact that God is working in your life. Moses was, Job was, Elijah was. God had been incredibly at work, and yet discouragement blinds us to that. So what should we do? The remedy is focus on the promises of God that can revive our spirits help us to see again with new eyes like we should and there's three promises here first one he says for i am with you God had been with Paul in the past he's going to continue to be with him those are great words for i am with you in times of loneliness Hebrews 13:5 tells us i will never leave you nor forsake you what a great promise When we're tempted to think, nobody loves me, I'm going to eat some worms, you know, just feel (laughs) awful, you can realize, no, God has promised in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. When we're so confused that we can't figure out what things are up and what things are down, we can bank on Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. You see, you're laying claim to promises which elevate your faith. The only way you can have faith elevated is through the Scriptures. You've got to lay claim to those promises. So when we realize, I'm just not able to do this, then you can bank on Paul's statement. And God is able... You're not able, but God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. That's Christ with us, the hope of glory. When we don't have the resources, financially or otherwise, we can quote Philippians 4.19, "...and my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus." When we're tempted to think it's impossible, impossible, we can lay claim to Luke 1, 37, for with God, nothing will be impossible. With God, nothing will be impossible. When we're feeling weak, Christ says to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So even though the reality of God's been in your life, we tend to forget about that during these times when we're prone to discouragement. So latch onto the promises of God. Um, the, the promise and the Great Commission was a promise that brought enormous help to David Livingston, the famous missionary in Africa. Here's an entry in his diary. June 14, 1856, felt much turmoil of spirit in prospect of having all my plans for the welfare of this great region and this teeming population knocked on the head by savages tomorrow. But It looked like they were just going to wipe them out. These savages were going to declare war on them. But I read that Jesus said... All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. It is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor. So there's an end to it. I will not cross furtively tonight as I intended. So such a man as I flee? Nay, verily, I shall take observations for latitude and longitude tonight, though they may be the last. I feel quite calm now. Thank God. So... <laughs> What was it that sustained him? It was a promise. It was the promise of a God who cannot lie. And Jesus has promised to be with you when you go through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, God promised to be with Ron Porter when he was facing all of the trouble with Sherry. God has promised to go with us when things are great, when things are bad, He has promised to go with us even when everybody is against us. And you've got to bank on those promises. You've got to say, I'm going to have faith in those promises and thank God for those promises. Make them affirmations of your faith that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Meditating on those can elevate your faith. Okay, second, Jesus had promised His protection. He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. It's very encouraging to know nothing can happen to you that's outside of Christ's will. Nothing. Now, when he first called uh, Paul, he told him, hey, Paul, you're going to go through some suffering. So suffering was a part of his will and he faced some suffering. But now he says, even though these people are against you, they are not going to be able to touch you. They cannot touch you because it's not God's purpose for you to suffer. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see how God makes all of the Jewish plans to destroy Paul backfire. No one can kill Paul until near the end of his life. He says, I have fought the good faith. I have finished the race. Until it's time for him to have finished, he cannot die. Impossible. You cannot die one day before it's God's time for you to die. Uh, The Jews tried to kill Jesus over and over again, and yet they were not able to do so until he said, it is finished, and God has a purpose for your life, every one of you, from the youngest of you to the oldest of you, and God's purposes for your life cannot be taken away until they are accomplished. I saw a t-shirt the other day that was a Calvin and Hobbes t-shirt, but I doubt very much that Bill Watterson approved of it, Uh, You know, they have a lot of uh, Calvin and Hobbes symbols and things that are just, you know, somebody else has drawn them, so who knows if this was one, but it said on there, God put me on earth to accomplish a certain number of things. Right now, I'm so far behind, I will never die. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I doubt that's what Paul or Jesus had in mind when they were talking about this, but God is our protection. One writer said, ahead of us, He's our guide. Behind us, He's our God. Underneath us are His everlasting arms. And above us, if we will look up, He's ever-present in a cloud of glory. That was a medical doctor, Paul Kiwi, who said that. Now, I've told you some of the stories of God's protection of some of our friends in China and India and in Ethiopia. Now, let me tell you the story of Frederick Nolan. Frederick Nolan was a Christian up in North Africa and there was a purge that the Muslims were doing and they'd already killed thousands of Christians and so he was fleeing for his life from his home, trying to escape the country. And he had already been running for several days. He was near the point of total exhaustion, could hear the soldiers closing in on him and he just pleaded to the Lord, Lord, please protect me. At that moment, he fell into a ditch or crevasse slash cave because at the end of the ditch there was a little uh, kind of an indentation that he was able to kind of crawl up into, but he said, there's no way that I could be hidden from them in here. And yet he was too tired to care. He just was figuring he was going to die. As soon as he got into the hole of that sort of like a cave in that crevasse there, there was a spider that very rapidly started spinning a web over the whole top of that cave And uh, when the soldiers came up, they peered into the cave. He could see their faces. He thought for sure they could see him because he was not really that much hidden. But the way the sun was shining or whatever, they obviously could not see him. And the leader said, oh, yeah, there's a a spider web over the top of here. He couldn't be in here. And they went on. Well, he rested there for a while. And he came out and he said this, "Where Where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. Where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the first part of that statement is true of you. Because God is with you, a spider web is like a wall. You have complete protection. But if you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the second statement is the one that is true of you. A wall is like a spider's web. Any walls of protection that you may put up are not going to protect you at all. They're not going to protect you from Satan. You're totally in his hand. They're not going to protect you from God. In fact, you'll burn for all of eternity in hell. Why? Because all of your walls you put up are just going to be set aside like a spider web. And so I would urge you, if you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, urge you to trust Him as Lord and Savior and protector. He has promised, all who put their faith in Him will receive that protection. He's not promising you a pain-free life. Just read the book of Acts and you'll see. Christian life is not pain-free. When I was a kid, people said, you know, I had slogans like, what was it? Um, I, I forget, but it was like a pepsodent smile, kind of an advertisement. Of, if you believe in Christ, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Well, many times you, you find Satan beating up on you even more, but... He will take you, not around the fire, but through the fire. He'll take you through the flood. He will be with you. He will strengthen you. And you'll come out the other end so much stronger. The last facet of God's promise that brought encouragement and enabled Paul to speak up and continue in Corinth was the promise of potential. If you don't see potential, you give up. What's the point of working, striving, if there's no potential for success? So, sometimes we don't have the eyes to see the potential that is out there. God here is giving him those eyes to see. He says, for I have many people in this city. The elect were in that city, and they must be reached. Paul sees the horrible state of the city, but God is able to see the people. God saw potential there. He can see things which we cannot and sometimes, often, He gives us eyes of faith to see potential. So what did God see? God saw potential converts, and converts they became. God saw potential saints, and saints they became. Uh, even though uh, all that was visible to Paul's eyes were perverts, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11 speaks of what God would do with those perverts. It speaks of the remarkable grace of Jesus Christ to change, empower, transform sinners. It says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What a wonderful promise. Such were some of you, which implies they were no longer uh, caught in that bondage. They had been addicted to sexual sins, they could not get out. The demonic stronghold was so powerful in their lives, they could not escape. But by God's grace, they were not only transformed, they were not only rescued from the bondage to Satan. And from the punishment of hell, they were enabled to live lives of purity. That's God's grace. Now, perhaps your discouragement this morning is not that you see so much Corinthianizing going out there in San Francisco and outside the church, but that you are a fornicator and you cannot overcome your sin. You want to. You've tried and you've tried and you cannot overcome that. What I encourage you to do is to call out to God for help and seek His remedies for your discouragement, one of the remedies is to understand the blueprints for overcoming the abominations of Corinth and trying harder is not going to help you you know if you 're trying harder with the same failed plans it 's going to continue to fail it 's understanding what are god 's blueprints and he 's given us specific steps for getting out of every pitfall that we find ourselves in he 's given us specific steps for getting over all of the the the, the evil things and the abominations that were in Corinth. And part of my job uh, is to counsel people through those blueprints. Second, seeing the victories that God has given to other people to overcome porn and fornication and sodomy and other things like that can give you hope. All of the abominations that were in Corinth. And yet, he says, such were some of you. And you, you, you say... Wow, if that brother in the Lord has gone through those, uh, those sins and God has rescued him, he can help me as well. Pure Life Ministries in Kentucky, I believe it is. Remarkable ministry has helped people who have been so addicted to various sexual sins, completely gaining victory from that. And it's given encouragement to others to try as well. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, You're not alone. You know, these are problems that are common to other people. They can be handled. Third, God has given us the body for accountability, support, and encouragement. God did not intend you to fight this battle against your sins all on your own. Now, pride wants you to fight it all on your own. Pride will say, oh, I don't dare let anybody else know that I'm having this sin. I, I don't want the body involved in this. But God wants the body to be there to help you. Uh, Here's how He words it in Hebrews 10, verse 24. He calls us to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. He calls us to hang out with godly encouragers. And then finally, God promises those who are serious all of the strength, all of the help that they need for victory. He promised in Romans 5, verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded, much more. I love those words. Much more. God's grace was sufficient for Paul because verse 11 speaks of Paul's enthusiastic return to ministry. It says, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. He caught a second wind. He was able to go on. And Paul promised the Corinthians they could have the same in their lives in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Now, we think... I I, I don't dare admit to my sin because everybody is going to think what a horrible person I am. He says it's common. The temptations you have are common to everyone. Common. So that's one part of the encouragement. And then he goes on to say, But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And that's part of my job, is to show you the ways of escape. And so whether your discouragement is with yourself, with your circumstances, with other people who are out there, I charge you to cast your cares upon Jesus knowing that He cares for you. I charge you to believe that He is for you, that He has promised to be with you, that He has promised I will never leave you nor forsake you, and that you can run to Him as a high tower in your time of need. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your Word. Thank you for the encouragement. Uh, that is in it. And Father, we thank You as well that You press us sometimes uh, to the point where all we can do is cry out in faith and it strengthens our faith. There are times of discouragement, but Father, help us not to give in to them, but I pray that our faith would be extended and grow and we would be the stronger for the trials that You bring to us. Thank You for each one here. You know the issues of their hearts. You know the trials and the difficulties that they are going through. And uh, Father, I pray that you would give courage and hope and endurance uh, to each one that is here, that they would indeed, by your grace, keep on keeping on. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.